0: We're looking at Mark 12 this month and next, last sermon series for the year, even for the decade. You know, we're moving into a new decade, the 20s. To understand what we have here in this very famous passage, but I I do need to do a little background work with you. Uh, I trust it's interesting to you. It's always a little bit of a risk when a preacher uh, says that. I was teaching downline uh, week before last, a little bit into this week, and I was teaching the life of David, which I do in downline each year. And uh, for time's sake, because there's so much narrative to go through, I, I, uh, we start with uh, Goliath and, and then we move to the Bathsheba-Uriah narrative. And I always say to the class, now you, you know these stories, and I had someone come uh, this time and say, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively new Christian. I don't know these stories. This is all brand new to me. And so, uh, if this is brand new to you, uh, here's a little bit of background that you need to know. And we'll let the we'll let the long-term Christians listen in uh, over the shoulder because they know all this, of course, already. What we have to understand in the background is that back then Israel was uh, what is called a vassal state. Uh, these are still around. Uh, There was a lot of bitterness over it, uh, in particular in Israel. What vassal means is that you are uh, your own state, but you're under uh, a a foreign ruler. And so uh, if you had a vassal king in Israel, that was Herod. But Herod was not sovereign over Israel. The Roman emperor, Tiberius, was sovereign over Israel. And uh, Herod was basically what we call a a puppet king. That's another way of saying uh, vassal. And Israel, more than any other kingdom in the ancient world, really chafed at being a vassal state, and and not because they wanted Herod. I mean, they wanted the Davidic ruler, but they didn't want Herod. Now, even corrupt rulers have their loyalists, and that was the Herodians, but subjugation to Rome. At the time of Jesus, Israel is subject to to the Roman Empire, and, and subjugation to Rome reminded Israel of the consequences spelled out back in Deuteronomy for covenant unfaithfulness. And besides that, the emperor, the Roman emperor Tiberius was an absolute pagan who considered himself a god. Uh, his coinage actually announced it. On the head side of the denarius that uh, Jesus held up there was Tiberius's headshot, his, his image. And the coin, not as big as your thumbnail, It had around his head, kind of think of a dime, uh, around Tiberius' head was the statement, the inscription as Jesus calls it in verse 16, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the other side of the coin were the words high priest, which was the equivalent in the Roman way of thinking of saying the emperor is the son of God. The emperor is God. Caesar is to be worshiped. Roman coinage couldn't have offended the people of Israel more. If you come from an anti-strong, anti-idolatry position, imagine how galling it was to not only be overrun by a foreign power, but to have to use their coinage that touts their emperor is a god. Now, the issue raised here revolved around something called the poll tax. There were all kinds of taxes that people had to pay, In some ways the tithing system encoded in Mosaic law functioned the same way taxation does but at least the money went to your own people, your own nation. Taxes paid to Rome went back ultimately to Caesar. The coin Jesus held up was literally Caesar's. I don't know if you know a lot about ancient economies, I don't know a lot, a little bit. I do know that back in that time the currency belonged to the king all of it the king was the economy and he was continually reimbursing himself through taxation it was his money and it would come back to him through taxation. Wealthy people were those who had ingratiated themselves to power and therefore were allowed to keep uh, what was again literally the king's money. So the dilemma being forced on Jesus is this we know this is a famous passage people quote this a lot but what's the issue? the dilemma being forced on jesus is this if he says yes pay the tax we owe it we're under roman authority the people would resent him some son of david you are you know you're a risk to us actually you're not going to take on the, the pagan authority that's uh, that's oppressing us but if jesus said don't pay the tax then he's a risk to rome he's a revolutionary And how long do you think it would take the Pharisees, if he'd have said that, to get over to Pilate, the Roman governor uh, there in Jerusalem, the representative of Tiberius, and lay out credibly witnessed accusation that Jesus is an insurrectionist. We heard him say publicly not 30 minutes ago, don't pay the tax. And then the Romans would arrest him, and they would arrest him for cause. The whole trial of Jesus before Pilate, as it later happened, There would have been something to prosecute if Jesus had said here, don't pay the tax. As it was, once Rome does arrest Jesus, not too long after the events here in Mark 12, there was no cause for it. And everybody knew it, including Pilate. Jesus' preaching was revolutionary, but not the revolution of bloody insurrection. It was the revolution of self-sacrifice through his own blood. God taking his judgment against us, against our sin and unrighteous and self-righteous expressions, both taking that fully upon himself in the person of his son. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That is treated as if he was guilty of everything unrighteous and self-righteous so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. Now one other thing for backdrop Before we take a couple of angles on this, is to understand that the Pharisees and Herodians mentioned here in verse 13, uh, they they were not in the habit of teaming up. You probably couldn't find two more uh, different, distinct groups. Uh, This is an instance of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Pharisees were religiously calculating, they were scrupulously devoted to tradition Uh, Herodians were not, they were politically calculating, they were devoted, Herodians were, to maintaining proximity to Roman power through kiss-up loyalty to the puppet king with no scruples. They took his name, They they were of Herod. But here the two play off one another, Pharisees and Herodians, because Jesus was a threat to both parties. They saw clearly that Jesus was never going to take their side In fact, Jesus doesn't take sides. He he takes over. So when the Pharisees and Herodians try together to force this dilemma on Jesus, he owns them. And we love that. We love watching the Pharisees and and the Herodians and the Sadducees next week get, get owned by Jesus. But here's where this begins to pivot to us. Because just as Jesus held up the denarius, the Roman coin, with Tiberius' image on it and the, the, the writing that referred to him as divine, as a, as a son of God himself. As the real and true only son of God holds up this coin and, and says what he, what he says here, Mark holds up to us as a writer. Mark holds up to us, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and we have to consider if there are any ways in which we are in their likeness. Which would mean what? Well, it would mean things like uh, maybe our identity might be too tied up in being right. We cannot receive correction or can't receive it outside our tribe. Mark tells us from the outset, Mark chose the, the stories he recorded under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he includes this one and says from the outset, look at it in the text, that the Pharisees and the early ones wanted to trap Jesus. And you know, it's, it's pointless to argue with someone who, who comes trying to catch you in your words. I don't know if you've had the experience. I've had it uh, at times, thankfully not a lot of times. But, you know, someone who must be right comes and asks you a question as if they want to know, and they don't really want to know. They just want to box you in. You'll frustrate yourself and delight them if you try to argue with... It's a piece of ministry advice. It's now become a meme. Uh, don't wrestle with a pig. You'll both get dirty and the pig likes it. See? And Jesus didn't argue with them. Notice, he put the pig down, memorably. I'd say he'd made pork chops of them, but it's a Jewish context and that would be torturing the analogy. But this, this whose likeness question. Picture Jesus with the coin... Little little thumbnail sized coin holding it up before this crowd and making his point. And it's a it, it's 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 a vital point. We're coming to it. But picture Jesus holding this cup up and uh, this coin up and, and asking the question, whose likeness? It's that whose likeness question in verse 16 that we, we want to camp on. Because it's a it's a question of identity and it's concern. And that's important. And the way Jesus asks it, verse 16, it's a question of belonging. We all belong to God as his image bearers. All human beings do, but not all render what belongs to God. Not all identify themselves as belonging to God. So let's take identity and belonging as two angles to consider what's here. And we'll take identity from the Pharisee angle and we'll take belonging from the Herodian angle angle. First let's consider identity from the Pharisee angle. What is their problem with Jesus? Well the answer to that is is manifold, it's multiple considerations, but as I was saying earlier the Pharisees had a very strong need to always be right. See these were the guys who had saved the country Long ago in the intertestamental period, the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the Pharisees had risen up and had uh, preserved the ritual of the nation, had had hidden copies of the law, had devoted themselves to the practice of of knowing stone cold what the law said and how it was to be. And because they wanted to keep the law so well, they, they came up with all these other strictures and... and and precepts in order to make sure they were not failing at any jot of the law that was the Pharisees and so they had a strong need to to always be right there was so much at stake for them the the nation was always at stake in, in their view but being right it was central to their identity it was central to their party it was central to their ministry they were ministers. And here comes Jesus who corrects them often. He didn't argue with them, but he did offer correction. And in their religiosity and in their traditionalism, they couldn't take that. Now, religion in and of itself is is not a bad word. Sometimes we use it to contrast with the gospel, but... The Bible talks about religion, James says religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world, that's a religion context. Religion just means a, 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 a uh, a body of things for lack of a better term, why doesn't a good word come right now Lord? Uh, a lack of uh, better things to believe. It's, just, it's religious things we believe. In and of itself it's not a bad word, nor is tradition. Uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, famously wrote that tradition is the vote that we give to our ancestors. We check in with them uh, so we don't repeat their mistakes and learn from, from them. But religiosity is religion gone bad. Traditionalism is uh, you no longer know the the why of what of what you do you just you just know what you do and so religiosity and traditionalism are what happened it's what happened to the Pharisees when you tie up your identity so tightly in being right to the point you cannot learn from anyone not in lockstep with you and everyone not in lockstep with you must always be wrong and everywhere opposed you know through the years uh, preaching uh, by the way, you've got a note in your bulletin there under the, the prayer about uh, we're digitizing some tapes. Please don't bring tapes of mine before 2015, okay? I don't like a lot of those old sermons that I preach, so just, just know that coming on. It's like I saw that in the bulletin. I thought, oh no, some of those sermons I wish went away are going to live on in digitized form. But, you know, it's interesting in, in preaching, it's a, it, it's, it's a monologue in a way, but there's always uh, 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 surrounding it interaction. It's always it sort of fascinated me, puzzled me, I guess, in the sense of fascination to, to learn when someone took offense. I'll, I'll learn, you know, someone took offense because I quoted someone they considered wrong. You know, I, I read from an Anne Lamott book or, or I, uh, I said some, something, or I used an illustration or a story uh, as an example from a source they considered out of bounds. And then my whole sermon was discredited. You know, you, 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 don't you know that person? Don't you know that, that book? Don't you know? I, I do know. And I have regrettably offended a number of people at times needlessly which I've tried to learn from through the years. I've been a jerk here sometimes. But I don't know that I'll ever understand the the reflex to dismiss what's true because I simply don't like the source. That's just odd to me. All truth is God's truth. If something is true it ultimately originates in Him and can lead to Him. Even The Pharisees and Herodians, you get an example of this in our very passage, through false flattery in verse 14, they still speak the truth. When they say to Jesus, you're true, and you show us the ways of God. Now, they've corroded that with all their, uh, you know, the false flattery that they're engaging in, but there it is. I read someone on this passage who pointed out, How captivating controversy can be. These were guys who loved controversy, they loved stirring it up and this person I was reading said that uh, controversy is so captivating because we, we end up so frequently tying up our identity in the sides that we choose and now I'm this and I'm opposed to that and everybody who's there is Is basically my enemy, even if I I wouldn't call him that, I I treat him that way. And and you remember fights at school? Well, I guess it depends on what kind of school you went to. There were fights at my school. I was in a small town in Alabama. Of course, there are gonna be fights in that kind of context. There were Alabama-Auburn fights all the time. Um, At my school, when there was a fight If you've been in a context like that, remember what happened, everybody dropped what they were doing and they ran to the fight and they watched the fight and they picked sides. (laughs) They would start cheering for somebody against somebody else. Controversy is captivating like that, particularly theological controversies, political controversies of our time and the personalities involved. And we're aware of those things, but if you get excessively engaged in them, not to say all controversies are baseless or needless, some controversies are worth engaging, but not nearly all of them. Because if you excessively engage in controversies to the point that your identity is now all tied up in the side you're on, against the side you're opposed to, you know what that that can actually do is it, it can become a way of hiding from God. In that, You're not wanting to face what God has given you to do and what you are to render to Him. You're too focused on everybody else. Evangelicals, evangelicalism as a movement, we we have a reputation for being people of the book. That means we're Bible-centered. And that means we have a felt need to have the right read on God's interests and, and we want to see truth trending. But you know, there's too much turning on one another today. So much hypercriticism toward him and her and them. He's wrong, she's wrong, they're wrong. And too much of that, I'm not saying we can't have debates, and, uh, but too much of, uh, of that, it, it's in the Pharisee likeness. What made them so hypercritical, the, the Pharisees? Was it because they were just such awful people? No, they weren't awful people at all. They were some of the best men Israel had. The nation owed a debt of gratitude to the Pharisees. But they were hypercritical to the point where not even God was good enough for them anymore. Jesus was way too gracious in what he allowed. And the identity that Jesus affixes to that is hypocrisy. Verse 15. He says in verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy their collectively, the Pharisees and the Herodians together, it's like Jesus says, uh, you know, why put me to the test? Why why do you need me to take a side? I don't take sides, I take over. That's the gist of what he's saying. And he does because he's God. And the second angle here to consider this uh, Herodian angle in which we... Kind of see what belonging looks like in the worst expression of it. Belonging from the Herodian angle, our second angle. The Herodians, again, loyalists to a vassal king, a puppet king, who happened to be thoroughly corrupt and was receiving benefits from Rome. Thus, they don't actually care about this question of paying taxes. The Herodians don't. They just just don't want Herod to look bad. Because if Herod looks bad, then they look bad. And they were all in on Herod. They put all their chips on Herod. And Jesus made Herod look bad all the time. And so Herodians were hiding from God also. Just in a different way from the Pharisees. Because whereas the Pharisees found the, the, the religious construct the place to hide, the Herodians found the political construct the place to hide. They were keeping proximity to power at all costs, these Herodians, including the cost of their own integrity, which is the reason why they were hypocrites. In belonging to a ruler who was so wrong, they had no integrity to advocate for what's right. And so they go to Jesus arm in arm with the Pharisees to act concerned. Here's a real issue. They only cared for themselves. They didn't care for the common good. They only cared for what Herod gave them. And that's how the Herodians avoided God, by looking to a corrupt king to be for them, who only Jesus could be. These parties go away. We don't have Pharisees and Herodians anymore, but the problems with Jesus they embodied are still with us. You see what Jesus is doing? How he lasers in here on how everybody is focused on the wrong rulers and the wrong kind of ruler. The Pharisees are focused on Caesar. Reacting to Caesar. Opposed to Caesar. That's that's, that's the filament in the heat of of what, what got them worked up. And Herodians belonged to Herod both of them were wrong rulers not good either one of them and then the people listening to Jesus here delighted with his take on things marveling at him but what do they want well they they want their ruler if he's the son of David they want him to overthrow Caesar and they want him to displace Herod rise up on the people's behalf but that that's the wrong kind of ruler it's not the ruler they really needed What Jesus did in the face of that is he turned the attention of the people back to God his father and so in holding up the coin as he did and saying what he said it's there's no controversy in it I mean it 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 should be unremarkable in Israel it should be unremarkable in Jerusalem where the where the temple is and I think of a a sting lyric here, Uh, all the priests fussing and flapping in priestly black like a murder of crows from his song, All This Time. You don't listen to much sting, do you? Okay, well. But all that time there was uh, all this distractibility around the people. Look how preoccupied they'd gotten with rulers and the threats of rulers and, and wrong kinds of ruling. because everybody's sense of identity and belonging was totally out of whack. Caesar thought he was a god. The coin said so. Herod would never say so, but he thought he was a god too. Look at Acts chapter 12 sometime. Whatever Herod did, the Herodians blessed. That's what happens when you belong to lesser kings. But there's only one true God whose image and likeness, it isn't, it isn't for dirty little coins. But people who are entirely unique and created order the Lord's image and likeness is on you. Everyone in the sound of my voice. Render to God what belongs to him. source your identity and belonging on everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus. We find that hard though, don't we? It's why we're drawn to so many competing identities and contradictory belongings. I laughed with Lynn in traffic yesterday, we got behind a a person who had on their SUV in front of us a Christian symbol, instantly recognized, Christian ministry. And then the John Lennon statement beside it, you may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Completely oblivious to the fact that these two don't go together, as that comes from a song that was basically uh, an ode to um, atheism. I thought of Francis Spufford once calling, imagine the My Little Pony of philosophical statements. And so I laughed to myself in my truck thinking, I wish I had a My Little Pony sticker. And at the next red light, I would walk up and say, here, here's the sticker you're missing on the back. This one is going right between the John Lennon statement and the cross statement here. We're drawn to competing identities. We're drawn to competing philosophies because we want ourselves in the center. We want to be the final arbiters of truth and righteousness and what goes and what gives. We want to belong to ourselves exclusively. Voltaire said, God made man in his image and man has been forever returning the compliment. You know why they marvel at Jesus in verse 17? You see it there? And they marvel at him. For what he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. You know why they marvel at him, what Jesus says to them? It's because he refuses to play their game. It's because he checkmates both sides of the board. Who even knew that was possible? It is when you haven't come to take sides, but to take over. And it's not a hostile takeover, Jesus' takeover of us. It's gracious. He's saving us from ourselves. Look, I don't know about you, but I'm cut to the heart in a passage like this one because I recognize as I read about these Pharisees and Herodians in the moment, I realize I want Jesus to take my side. How often I want him to bless my religiosity or my lack thereof. I'm justified by his grace. I believe this. But then I spend so much time and energy trying to justify myself. I still find the Pharisee and Herodian likeness in me, I'm probably not alone in that. What do I do about it? Feel bad? Get down on myself? It doesn't work. Look to the man holding up the coin. He already knows we cannot live up to his image and likeness on us. He already knows where we're in friction with him but he loves us anyway. Though we're in the Pharisee and Herodian likeness ourselves. That's the best thing I could ever tell you here. Caesar owned his coins. Jesus says, let him have them. (laughs) They belong to him. His image is stamped on them. Give him his claim. But God makes claims too. But unlike Caesar, God makes claims at great cost to himself. He spent for us in sending his son who, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. To own a people and to teach us patiently and graciously how to own his ownership of us. How to render to him what's his. Let him have what's his. Center your identity and your belonging and everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus. Now that may happen for you all at once suddenly in a a moment and, and you make this firm decision a definitive act but for a lot of us it's a learning how to center our identity and our belonging over and over and over in everything God's promised to be for us in Jesus and the more we come to see ourselves in Pharisee and Herodian likeness the more we should be chased to Jesus the more we want to be done with that at least I do when I see my Pharisee heart, when I see my Herodian heart, uh, I want to belong more fully to the Lord, who's the best thing going. And Jesus will, in this chapter, will come to it. He'll tell us how we give ourselves to him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. He's coming to that. That's how. That's how you give over your identity and belonging to Jesus again and again And then it works out from us in hundreds of ways what it means to to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's how you spend what was spent for you, but you'll never exhaust it. Jesus would go on from here. He's on the way to purchasing us. And not with Caesar's coins. Tiberius would die. And so would Herod ingloriously. Again, look at Acts chapter 12. And Jesus would die ingloriously as well in the, in the manner of death. But The difference is that wasn't going to be the end of Jesus. And why not? Because of who he was, his identity, and because who he belonged to. And also because even in their false flattery, the Pharisees and Herodians actually did seek the truth when they said, Jesus, we know you're true. And we know that you truly teach the way of God. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Then we're gonna sing a great old hymn, Be Thou My Vision, which we need to make our prayer, Lord, not just a closing song, but our prayer ongoing, that we see you when so many other things compete for our primary vision. Father, take away the distractions and the preoccupations that create in us uh, such an unsettledness, such a discontent, and a malcontentment, even, and show us again and again and again that the most weighty considerations of life can be satisfied in submitting to you, learning to walk with you, learning to respond to you, to draw upon the resources you make available to us. Lord, this moment so long ago was so impressive to the Pharisees and the Herodians, but it it didn't change their hearts. We rely on your spirit to do that. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be not those who attend to truth and preaching, but but it doesn't stick. We move on to the next thing. We pray we would be those who cannot get away from the truth and from the call of God in Christ to give all that we know of ourselves to everything we know of you. We want that. Even if we've come in here this morning in sin, in frustration, Lord, there's nothing that is a mystery to you and you still call us to yourself and you give us grace upon grace and you embodied grace and truth perfectly and we thank you that you are for us, not against us. And that you call us to yourself and you purchase us with a price that only you could pay. And so no one can repay you. We're grateful to you and for you. And for all that you've been doing in our lives that we don't see and the things that we do. We thank you for how you carry us and how you keep us. And We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.